welcome. We're glad you're here. And um, just to introduce myself, I'm Paul Buckley. I'm the lead pastor here and get to bring God's Word most Sundays. And we are in a series in the Old Testament looking at the major themes and people of the Old Testament. This morning we'll be in the book of Daniel. And we'll be going through the entire book uh, relatively quickly just because it's, there's a lot in it. So you can be turning there. Just a little plug for celebration while you're turning. Uh, celebration for Peg and for me and really for our whole family was formative uh, for how we understand church and the Christian life. And the values that we embody as a church, uh, the, the biblical values we pursue, uh, for us in many ways were imparted through those conferences that we went to in, in a powerful way. We certainly saw them and experienced them, but by coming together with God's people at those conferences and hearing just excellent spirit-empowered preaching, it made it a huge impact on our lives. And so I can't say enough just to encourage you if you're able to go, uh, to, to, to go and to attend. If finances are an issue, please let us know because we don't want them to be an issue. If you really want to go, uh, we'll find a way to work with you to make it so you can get there. So just let us know. Uh, it should be a wonderful time as we come together uh, in God's name. And God loves to visit us as we gather, and certainly this morning as well is no exception. So we'll be in Daniel, uh, going through Daniel. Let me ask you some questions, actually, just to kind of get us thinking about Daniel. Uh, do you know what the all-time bestseller, as far as a work of fiction in English, the all-time bestseller is? Anyone know? Good. Actually, you guys, you got it. Did you see my notes ahead of time? It's not the things you might think, not Jane Austen, not Lord of the Rings. It's actually Pilgrim's Progress. Very good. Uh, whoever has the prize to give to Josiah, please give him the prize now. He got the question right. Yeah. It's Pilgrim's Progress. Pilgrim's Progress is a, an allegory written by John Bunyan back in the 1600s. He, he wrote it while he was in prison. He was in prison for 12 years. Imagine that. Thrown in prison for 12 years. Back then, uh, they didn't you know, they didn't provide for you. Uh, they didn't provide for his family. So his family was destitute while he was in prison. He was in prison for his faith. He was a believer. And he wanted to, he was a pastor. He wanted to preach according to conscience, how they understood the Bible, and, and they didn't want him to do it. And so he was in prison for 12 years. And in that time, though, he wrote much of Pilgrim's Progress. This wonderful book came out of this great trial that John Bunyan experienced. And this, this book, Pilgrim's Progress, uh, it, which is an allegory about the Christian life, seen through this fictional character Christian as he journeys through the world, this great book has inspired and comforted millions of people. There was a time, actually, in, in the history of the English-speaking world where a family would only have two books in their house. One would be the Bible, and the other would be Pilgrim's Progress. Charles Spurgeon, the famous 19th century pastor, said, next to the Bible... The book I value most is John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. I, I believe I've read it through at least a hundred times. It is a volume of which I seem to never tire. And, and this wonderful book just gives a, a picture of, of Christian on his journey through the world to the celestial uh, city, which is heaven. And it's really inspired people to just, just to understand the Christian life and continue walking the Christian life. Out of Bunyan's severe trial came this book, that has profoundly informed and inspired Christians on their journey. Well, I believe that the book of Daniel actually is like that, is meant to function like that as well. God has given us this book of Daniel in the Scripture 
And it is born actually out of a trial, out of Daniel's trial and out of the trial of his friends and the trial of God's people. And it's been preserved for us to, to function in a very similar way, to inform us and to inspire us. And I want to take time today just to dig into this amazing book. I believe at the core, what this book does is it teaches us how to live as God's people in exile. And I'll explain that more later. It, it teaches us how to live as God's people in exile. We are called and empowered by God to be hopeful, helpful, and homesick. We're going to learn about that. But before we start, let's pray and ask God himself to speak to us through the book of Daniel. Lord, thank you. Thank you for this wonderful book. And thank you, Lord, for how it has served your people in history. And Lord, thank you for how you would want it to serve us as well. And Lord, we ask you, help us, Lord, to understand Daniel. Help me to communicate what this book teaches, to communicate your word. And Lord, change us by your word. Change us and, ins and inform us and equip us to learn how to live as we dig into your word. Pour out your spirit, O God. Visit us, transform us, and glorify your worthy name, we pray. Amen. Amen. I'll be reading different sections as we go along from the book, but let, let's uh, start in the beginning where we meet Daniel at the very beginning of the story, chapter 1 of Daniel, looking at verses 1 through 7. Um, it says there, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God, and he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace, and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate, and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them the names, these gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. So we learn in the very beginning that that Something's happened since the reign of Josiah. We talked about Josiah last week, right? We talked about this revival under King Josiah, this renewal of life in the Lord, this renewal of faith and, and devotion under his reign, and this profound revival. And shortly after the end of his reign, really just 12 years later, things change. And, and there's an invasion by King Nebuchadnezzar by the Babylonians, and, and he conquers Jerusalem. He conquers Jerusalem, and he takes the, the vessels... Uh, uh, from the temple, takes them to his country, really as a sign of his uh, domination of Jerusalem, of him conquering Jerusalem. And he also takes some of the nobility with him. And, and that, this was actually the first part of a multi-phase conquest uh, by the Babylonians. And God had spoken of this in Scripture. He had promised, actually, 800 years earlier. He had told the people, his people, I'm the God who's brought you out of, the, out of Egypt. I, I want you to have no gods before you but me. I want you to follow me. I, I've been gracious to you. Now believe and follow me. He, he, he invited them into this amazing covenant of grace. 
And he said, if you will believe and obey, you'll experience blessing in the land, fruitfulness in all these ways. But if you abandon the covenant, if you turn from this covenant, if you are faithless in disobedience, you will receive cursing. You will receive curses as a result. And the ultimate curse was promised that they would be exiled from the promised land. They would be put away from the presence of God through the temple, put away from the presence of God in the land, and the blessing of walking closely with the Lord and with one another. Over time, they were unfaithful again and again and again, and God was patient with them. Finally, after 400 years or so, God brought the punishment, the discipline that he promised. And so the book of Daniel starts with this tragedy. And, and I hope you could understand and get kind of in the flow of the Old Testament just how tragic this is. They've been rescued out of Egypt, out of sin. They've been brought from this place of, of darkness and under false gods and under a, a regime that, that was a pagan regime, was not devoted to the Lord and walked in all sorts of wicked ways. They, they were brought from that oppression to freedom in the Lord, to life in the Lord, to, to life under the true and living God and all the blessing that comes with it. And now they've forfeited that. They've been sent out. They've been exiled away from His presence. And so this story starts with a great tragedy. That's the context here. And, and certainly the Old Testament people of God would have understood that as they read this opening section. Yet Daniel is full of promise. The book of Daniel is full of God's promise and encouragement. It is a, it is a book just jam-packed with encouragement and help from the Lord. And although this exile is a trial and even a tragedy, this book communicates to the people of God in the Old Testament and through them to us that God never abandons His people. He holds out hope for them. He doesn't change. Though they may be faithless, He remains faithful and He cannot change His nature. He is the sovereign Lord. He is sovereign over all kingdoms, be they Egypt or Babylon. This book of the Bible teaches God's people how to live in exile under God, under His grace, and under His sovereignty. And it's a lesson for us. Mike read from 1 Peter earlier, 1 Peter 1.1. 1, 1. Peter addresses this letter written to Christians like us, written to believers, and he calls them elect exiles. He says to be a believer basically in that means to be chosen of God, beloved of God, forgiven in Him and belonging to Him, part of the family of God, but also an exile, living away from your true home. So not only did Daniel and the people of God in the book of Daniel live in a foreign land, but we too live in a foreign land. To be a Christian in the world until Christ comes back and establishes the fullness of His kingdom, to be a Christian is to live as an exile away from our true home. And this book is a wonderful book and a very important book in understanding how to live as an elect exile, how to live in a world that's not interested in the things of God ultimately, a world that left to itself lives in rebellion and pandemic brokenness apart from God, willful in its rebellion. And to live in this world is to live amidst all this, longing for our true home. And so this wonderful book of Daniel teaches us how to live as exiles. And there are many lessons in it. I want to hit on just three, though. I want to talk about how to live as God's people in exiles, to, to live as those who are hopeful, 
helpful, and homesick. So let's dig into that. First, hopeful. The book of Daniel teaches us that God is in control over everything, over all the things that go on, all the, all the challenges of life, over all the, the rulers that may not care about God. He's in control of them. He's over them. He's still God. He's still the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings. He rule, rules over all things. He rules over all disappointments and challenges as well. He rules over this exile. This is a tragedy for them. And this book teaches us no, God has not changed. He's still ruling. He's still reigning. He's still good. He's still gracious. He's still there for all and any who will call upon Him. That's what this book teaches us. This failure of theirs was horrible. This exile came after awful sin, sins of witchcraft, human sacrifice, sexual orgies, utter failure for the people of God. And yet God is still God. And He's still there for those who would turn to them. Though they have been faithless, He remains faithful. And so as Daniel is in, the, in this land of Babylon, away from his true home, ultimately Israel was a foreshadowing of the ultimate true home, the new creation, where God's kingdom will be in, in its fullness. But they're away from their true home. As they're away, they face situation after situation that's challenging. There are trials that, that follow. It would be just enough to, to merely be in Babylon, to be exiled out of Israel, away from the people of God and the temple. But on top of that, Daniel faces situation after situation, challenge after challenge, possible disappointment after possible disappointment. I think our lives at times can look like Daniel's, maybe in a less dramatic way, but, but he faced a lot. And so it starts early on, actually. They're taken as interns into leadership in the government, and they are in a land where the culture is entirely pagan. It's not a, it's not a God-fearing culture. It's not dedicated to Yahweh. It's not dedicated to, to the real Lord. It's dedicated to this pantheon of, of different gods who, who inspire and require a, a totally different lifestyle. And they're right in the midst of it. They're interns working for the government that promotes this lifestyle. Can you imagine that? We, we don't see anything quite like this. As bad as things might get or have been perhaps at times in our culture, we don't see a situation like they faced. They were working for the government that promoted just... Blatant paganism. Matter of fact, their names get changed. They all have these wonderful names that are God-centered. Daniel means God's my ruler. Hananiah, God is gracious. Mishael, who is like God. Azariah, God is my helper, gets changed. Daniel becomes Belteshazzar, goddess, goddess protect the king. That's what that means. Shadrach uh, means I, I fear, I, I'm fearful of the moon god. Meshach means who is like the moon god. And Abednego means servant of Nebo, the shining God. Their names are changed. And not only that, they are actually required to eat food from the king's table. And what's the problem with that? Well, first off, that food would have been dedicated to all these false deities. And we know from elsewhere in Scripture, behind these deities are demons. And so, so for them to eat it would have been for them to say, you know, we, we agree with what you're doing. We agree with these false deities. Also, the, the food would have been non-kosher, and they were told as God's people in the Old Testament, this, this has been fulfilled in Christ, so we are not under kosher law, but, but as a way to express their devotion to the Lord, they were to eat certain foods and not eat others. So this food wasn't kosher. It wasn't okay for them to eat. It would have included blood in the meat, pork, probably horse meat, all sorts of stuff that they, they wouldn't have eaten. And they're being required to eat it. So right away in the beginning of the story, we 
are uh, confronted with the situation of believers living in this foreign land that's saying, you've got to do all these things. We're going to change your name, and now you've got to eat this food. And so what do you do in a situation like that? Is the best thing just to kind of get along? Just chill out? Hey, just, just eat the food. Go with your new name. Just chill out. Is that an answer? That's actually a common answer uh, that, that is there. There are, uh, are people who would say, you know, that's, you just got to get along. You got to change with the times, right? You got to make some compromise here. That's one solution for believers living in a, in a foreign culture, like our situation. Or how about the other side? They should have done a hunger, hunger strike, right? We're just going to do a hunger strike. We're not going to eat and do a hunger strike, and we're going to protest. So the other side of that is, is rather compromising, being combative. Is that an answer? Well, what we see in Daniel is, is an alternative, this, this collaboration. They seek to work with the culture. They seek to work with the authorities, but in a way where they honor God first and foremost. And so they offer an alternative and, and a test. They, they, God gives them favor with the rulers, and they say, how about we try something? Just for 10 days, you feed us just vegetables and water uh, and probably grains, you know, basically not gonna, no, no meat, no wine dedicated to the, the false gods. Just these things. And if, if we're better after, if we're in, you know, in good shape after 10 days, then we'll continue. If not, do what you want. That's what they said. And God honors that, uh, blesses that. And 10 days later, they look great. Matter of fact, they look better than everyone else. Guys, the point here, by the way, is not that vegetarian diets are best. They might be, but that's not the point. The point here is that when we're in those situations, we trust the Lord and we look for his solution. We look to work with the authorities. And so this first trial turns out really well, but that was only the first trial. There's, there's many others that are to follow. Later on in chapter 2, the king threatens to kill all the wise men. And Daniel and his friends are actually being trained to be wise men. So the king threatens to kill all the wise men. Why? Well, because he had a dream. He had this dream that affected him. Uh, it was a profound dream, a disturbing dream. And he believed that that. The gods were speaking to him through the dream in some way. And so he wanted his wise men to tell him what the dream's about. The only problem is, is he had a, a test in that question. He said, okay, guys, if you're really wise men and you really know, you know what the gods are saying, you tell me what I dream. I'm not going to tell you the dream. And they're like, what, what are you talking about? That's ridiculous. If you don't tell us the dream, we have no way. He said, no, I'm not, I'm not telling you the dream. And you're all a bunch of phonies if you can't tell me what the dream was. And he's, he's King Nebuchadnezzar. I don't like phonies. I'm just going to kill you all, every single wise man. We're going to get rid of all of you. And that's what he plans to do. Word, word comes to Daniel and his friends. What do they do? They seek the Lord. This is an awful situation. Stuck in the culture, a king that's a madman. This is his dream. But they seek the Lord because they know he's God. And they seek to act redemptively in this culture as exiles. And they seek the Lord together, and God reveals to Daniel what the dream was and what its meaning is. And he goes and he reports to the king the dream. And by the way, we'll get into the dream a little bit later on. Uh, many of the visions and so forth in Daniel point to the ultimate fact that God rules over all these things. He rule, rules over all kingdoms. He's in control. That's what the dream is, is about. There's this statue that represents the different kingdoms. And the statue has a large rock cut out by the hands of God that, are, that is thrown at the feet of the statue. That rock represents the kingdom of God, represents the reign of the Messiah ruling and reigning over all these great kingdoms. So that word in and of itself, though originally intended for Nebuchadnezzar, is intended for our, our God's people so they would know that God reigns over all these kingdoms, including this 
oppressive one under Nebuchadnezzar. Well, you think that might be enough trials for a lifetime at that point, but there's more. Uh, the next story in, in line is Nebuchadnezzar decides to set up his own statue, uh, a golden statue 90 feet tall. It's like a big golden totem pole. We don't know what's going on, but it's probably, our, a good guess is that he's probably had this dream and, and, and realized the gods are saying this and thinks, and in the dream, the head and the, the, the shoulders, I think, are of gold. That represents his kingdom. He's probably thinking, all right, I'm going to kind of work my own little vision here and make a gold, a gold statue of me to represent my kingdom. And he, and he requires everyone to bow down to it. And in the story, uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are there. Daniel's absent. We don't know why. Perhaps he's not required to worship the statue. We don't know what, what's going on. But, but Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are required to worship, and they respect, respectfully refuse. So they're being required to worship according to these customs. And they respectfully refuse. And, and it's wonderful just to read how they respond. They're, they're firm, but they're respectful. Well, that doesn't help, actually, because the king gets really angry. And he gets so angry, he, he says he wants, actually, it said ahead of time, anyone who doesn't do this is going to get thrown in the fiery furnace. Well, he makes it extra hot. And then we read in chapter 3, 16 through 28, just good to hear the actual, actual text here. It's great. Uh, chapter actually starting in verse 21. It says, Then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments, and they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. Because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste, he declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. He answered and said, But I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near the door of the burning fiery furnace. He declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, Come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire. And the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of the men. The hair of their heads was not singed, their clothes were not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. A wonderful story. wonderful story of deliverance from the oppressive reign of Nebuchadnezzar, really. And so we see in the beginning of Daniel that this, this king who had worked this tragedy of the exile in Jerusalem, who had, who had been the instrument to bring about really their greatest tragedy historically, is totally under the sovereign reign of God. And all the things that he devises to counteract God are undone by the sovereign God. As God's people trust him and walk in his ways and seek to be redemptive in how they interact. It's, it's a wonderful story in that we see God's rule and reign. There's another 
dream you can look at where Nebuchadnezzar actually dreams about losing his mind, and he does lose his mind for seven years, and that is as well as a demonstration that God is sovereign over Nebuchadnezzar. He rules over this great ruler. And that's the lesson in this part of Daniel for us. Put your hope in God who rules and reigns over all, even as you live in exile. Well, you probably know some of the other stories as well. It doesn't end there for Daniel. There's the story of Daniel in the lion's den. Later on, he's an old man by that, this time. He's been faithful, and, and it's a new regime. The Medo-Persians have taken over. It looks like the Medo-Persian uh, governors are jealous of Daniel. Daniel's made prime minister. They don't like it. Here's a Jewish man in exile. He's, he's the prime minister. What about us? So they plot and plan, and they devise this way to, to trap Daniel. They can't find anything on him, so they get uh, the Darius to create this law where for one month people can only pray to him. Now, that seems ridiculous, but in the day that wasn't ridiculous, and it was a way for a king to shore up loyalty and support. It, so it probably sounded like a good idea. Yeah, okay, one month just to pray to me, make sure they understand that I'm the, a demigod here, and I'm the king, and they got to follow me. So he agrees to it, not knowing that it's a trap for Daniel. Of course, Daniel, as a, an elect exile himself, right, his, his hope is in the Lord. He's there to serve, but he's not going to compromise those values. And so he, he just keeps on doing what he's always been doing, prays a few times a day. And they catch him, and they throw him in the lion's den. And God protects him in the lion's den and, and vindicates him in the whole story. Wonderful story in Daniel chapter 6 you can read as well. All these stories together are vivid, and they're meant to fill our imaginations and lead us not to just say, well, that's a cool story I love to tell my kids, but lead us to say, God rules over all. God is in control, and I can trust him just like Daniel did. And the fulfillment of this is wonderful in Christ. For us as believers, we know the fullness of this. We not only know the story of Daniel, but we know the story of Jesus, where God came in the flesh and lived among us and lived a perfect life, then offered up that righteous life on the cross to pay for our sins, and then rose again, victorious over sin and death. He ultimately conquered the enemy of sin and death. And now through faith in Him, we are, we are made in union with Him. We are joined with Him. And our sins are, are paid for by His blood, as we sang earlier. And we have new life in Him through the power of the resurrection. And we're promised in Romans 8 that God will work all things for our good in Christ. So we get the fullness of what Daniel really only alluded to. I love how it says it in Romans 8, 28 to 32. It says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? That's the good news for us. Fulfilled in Christ, he works all things for our good. We can trust him entirely. He is sovereign. He works good in our lives. That's the story of Daniel. That's what it teaches us, that he, that he is God. He is in control, and we can trust him no matter what. No matter what may happen, he's in charge. That's the story of Daniel. That's the story of the Scriptures. 
So let me ask you something in light of that. Do you let your failures and trials, disappointments and challenges define you? Do you let your failures and trials, your disappointments and challenges define you? Or do you let the fact that the living God is in control and he's good, do you let that define you? What defines you? What gives you a sense of what your life is about? What gives you a, a sense of, of, you know, what, what influences your emotions and your perspective? Is it your failures and trials and challenges and disappointments? Or is it God, the God of Daniel? The God who is for you in Jesus Christ? That's, that's a question that Daniel brings to us. And that's an intention of the book of Daniel to get us to define ourselves not as those who have undergone some tragedy or trial or whatever, but people who belong to the living God who is in control and sovereign and good and for us. We learn to live as hopeful exiles through Daniel. We are called to live as those that are helpful as well. God's people live as exiles who are helpful, blessing the city and the culture where they live. That's what we see with, with Daniel. We see it in the life of, of Daniel that, that they he's part of government. He's serving government. He's serving his king. He's involved. He's blessing the city. He's seeking to bless the government and bless the culture. His orientation is to be helpful. Now, the orientation could have been, you know, we're, we're exiled. We're just going to totally withdraw from the Babylonians. We're just going to kind of draw into our own community, stay away from these people. This is a pagan nation, an evil nation. So we're just going to create our little bubble of, of people under the covenant here and separate from them entirely and have no regard for them. But that's not the message of Daniel. Matter of fact, that's not the message. That's contrary to the message of all the books that address the exile. They all point the people of God to engage their city and culture, to, to look to bless their city and culture, to be forces of redemption there. So in Ezekiel, you, there's a theme there that God's not limited to Jerusalem. He, he can, he's still God. The glory the glory cloud, the glory goes everywhere. It's mobile. It goes everywhere. He rules and reigns over all things. The story of Esther, which is later on in the exile, is that God is totally sovereign over even the political machinations of, of, a, of a government. And he's so sovereign that he can actually work out things in a way that, are, that are, it's poetic and ironic how he does. Great book to read, the book of Esther. Jeremiah explicitly addresses this topic of being a blessing God, through Jeremiah, in Jeremiah 29, it says this, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, verse 4, To all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. And pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. We live as God's exiles as well. And we are called to seek to bless our city and culture in the name of God. Like Daniel, like Jeremiah, like we're commanded through Jeremiah. It's so important to understand this. So important. There's a thread in the church that... that says basically holiness is achieved through separation. That to be holy, and we are definitely called to be the holy people of God, but the way you get there in large part is through separation. And there's actually uh, terms for it. 
there's a first degree, second degree, and third degree and more of separation. Let me explain. First degree separation actually is very biblical. It means you yourself don't participate in the things that are evil, only in things that are good. So you separate from evil itself. You don't do it, right? That's clear, consistent. Nowhere in Scripture does it ever say anything but that, first degree of separation. Second degree of separation is this idea that you separate from people who do evil. And that is not true in Daniel, in the exile, or the New Testament. Now, the Old Testament, God does call them to separate from those who do evil. He's looking to preserve his people, his covenant people, so that they might endure. But from the exile on, it's no longer the case. Second degree separation doesn't happen ever in Scripture except in one case. When there's a believer who has persistently refused to obey, to repent and believe and obey. And it's only to be done according to Matthew 18, so there's due process. You must practice Matthew 18 in a biblical way. And when that's the case, yes, you do practice second degree separation for the, the, the purpose of seeing them come back to the Lord, to repent, to be put outside the people of God and to come back. First and second degree separation are all that we see in Scripture. Second degree separation always involves Matthew 18. That may sound technical, but the reality is to think about our lives and how we relate to those around us. And to understand that Daniel says you don't separate from those who do evil unless they're believers who have gone through Matthew 18. That's using the New Testament. You don't do that. You get involved. You build relationship. Think about what Daniel's called to do. I mean, he's... he's involved intimately in government. He's involved intimately in these relationships with people who are doing horrendous things. And yet he's to be a force of redemption there. He himself is not to do those things. He's to be distinct along with God's people. He's to be different. He's to separate himself in terms of his heart and affections and so forth, but not physically. He's involved. He's engaging. He's seeking to bless the city and the culture. This is what we're called to as God's people. This is the lesson of the book of Daniel. It's an important one to get, and, and, and I think we have to think through how we practice it. Engaging the city and the culture is a powerful means of grace and blessing on people around us. Historically, this is how the church has grown. This is how the church has reached the population with the good news of Christ and, and the love and life of Christ. Part of how the early church grew is that they engaged their culture. They, they went and they helped. They served. Rodney Stark actually talks about during uh, some of the great plagues in the early church, there's one in 160 A.D. and 250, um, the behavior of the believers in, in blessing others made a huge difference. The early church grew at about 40% per decade. It grew. That's fast. Um, and one of the reasons was how they responded to things like plagues. So these plagues came through, and the Christians engaged and helped others. They, they took care of the sick, both believers and non-believers. Dionysius, the bishop of Alexandria, said this, Most of our brother Christians showed unbounded love and loyalty, never sparing themselves and thinking only of one another. Heedless of danger, they took charge of the sick, attending to their every need and ministering to them in Christ. And with them departed this life serenely happy. For they were infected by others with the disease, drawing on themselves the sickness of their neighbors and cheerfully accepting their pains. Can you imagine? The best of brothers lost their lives in this manner, is what the bishop said. And then he's speaking of those that didn't know the Lord. He said, the heathen behaved in the very opposite way. At the first onset of the disease, they pushed the sufferers away and fled from their dearest, throwing them into the roads before they were dead and treated unburled corpses as dirt. 
But when they returned, they were profoundly affected by the church. And many of their loved ones who they had given up for dead were alive because of the nurture and care of the church. And many came to Christ. It's a wonderful picture and model of, of what we're called to, to be like. Engaging, blessing, involved, forming relationships with people who don't yet believe that we might bless them and, and, and be genuine friends. Yes, our fellowship is different until we, they come to know the Lord. Yes, it's different, but there's still engagement going on. So how do you understand how you're called to live as an exile? As one who belongs to God that lives in a, a place, a culture, a, a world that isn't interested in the glory of God. How do you understand yourself? How do you seek the welfare of the city and the culture? How do you do that? Are you doing that? Are you seeking to contribute to your city, to your community? Or are you just taking advantage of the things that they offer you? Is it only a one-way street? There's lots of benefits of our society. Or are you blessing? Are you involved? Are you getting to know your neighbors? Are you involved with the PTO? Do you, are you part of Team Haverhill or one of, one of the things like that? Have you thought about running for office maybe? Joining the Rotary Club? Doing something on Arbor Day? Actually, one way is to be involved with our VBS. That's one of the ways we bless our community. Being part of touching the lives of some of the 14,000 children in Haverhill with no church that proclaims Christ. We're called to be helpful as God's elect exiles. Finally, and relatively quickly, <laughs> we are called to live as those who are homesick, seeking the fullness of the kingdom of God. And, and much of Daniel is about this. There's a homesickness in Daniel. Though he is trusting God, he's hopeful. His trust is in the sovereign God. He knows God's in control. And though he's seeking to be helpful, he's genuinely involved in serving in government and elsewhere. He's, he's homesick in it all. He's longing for the kingdom of God. He's longing for the restoration of, of the kingdom as Israel and ultimately as an as a Old Testament saint looking forward to the ultimate kingdom. And so this book is full of this homesickness, of this longing and looking forward to God's establishment, reestablishment, fulfillment of the kingdom of God. And so if you look at the latter part of Daniel, it's full of, of these different visions and revelations that Daniel has. And many of these revelations are, are encouragements that God is doing something. He's in control of all these things that are going on in the world, all these kingdoms, all these kings. He's in control of all these trials that you're facing. But it's all moving in a direction. It's all moving in a direction of, of establishing of his kingdom. And so there are prophetic words in Daniel pointing forward to these things. And, and by the way, the point in these prophetic words is not to figure out exactly what day, you know, Jesus was supposed to first come and exactly what day he's going to come back. That's not the point. Maybe you can derive that from Daniel. The point is to build your hope in your homesickness that God's establishing his kingdom ultimately and his kingdom will rule over all other kingdoms. His kingdom will vanquish all other kingdoms ultimately. And so in Daniel, we have these visions looking forward to this kingdom. Now, we know more of the story, don't we? There's things in Daniel that talks about the, the, the Son of Man coming on the clouds. It talks about this king establishing the kingdom. We know who that king is, don't we? His name is Jesus. And he's come to conquer a kingdom in an unexpected way. He came humble on a donkey, serving others. He humbled himself to the point of death on a cross. 
The ultimate king, meant to rule the ultimate kingdom, humbled himself ultimately to rescue us, to pay for our sins. And through faith in him, we can be forgiven, we can be empowered, and we become part of the family, and we get to experience the kingdom. The kingdom has come in Christ. It's started. It's been inaugurated is the word that's used sometimes. It's here. His rule and reign has started from really his death and resurrection and ascension. It's started. And it continues and it grows and grows and it influences the whole world and, and touches people in all kingdoms everywhere. And ultimately when the work is done of the, the gospel being proclaimed throughout the earth among all peoples, he'll return and he'll finalize his kingdom. He'll finalize the work. He, he will entirely and permanently vanquish sin and death and sorrow and sickness and he'll rule and reign. There'll be no more oppression, no more trials, no more sorrow, no more sickness, no more sin. Just living in his presence as his people in a renewed heaven and a new earth. That's our final home. That's where we belong. And we live and long for that now like Daniel. And so just a couple of thoughts on how we observe Daniel and how we can think about doing that in our lives. Daniel, one thing that Daniel does in light of his homesickness is he prays. He prays. And he asks the Lord to work. He's in his exile and he reads the word. He realizes it's going to be 70 years. So what does he do? He seeks the Lord. He confesses his sins and the sins of his people. And he asks the Lord to restore the kingdom. He prays. He seeks God. And it's a wonderful story in, within Daniel, his prayer life, and really the life of his friends as well. But his prayer life is rich and persistent. He's homesick. And so he prays and he asks for the kingdom to come. God to restore the people and bring his kingdom. And, he, and it's interesting, in the storyline, he's praying, he's interceding, and there's stuff going on in the heavenly realms that he doesn't even know about. There's this glorious angel comes to him a couple times and really and says, Daniel, we've been listening to your prayers. And we're working. And one of the angels comes to him and says, I was resisted by the prince of Persia and the prince of Greece will resist. There's, there's these demonic entities, these high-level, powerful entities that are opposing Daniel's prayers. So he knows nothing about it. But there's a greater, a greater warrior, God himself, but also the archangel Michael and other angels that are battling. And they battle. There's a spiritual warfare going on. So all these things that are part of God's plan that, that he's working that are happening in the heavenlies, Daniel doesn't know about it. He just prays. He's homesick. And so he asks, and he doesn't give up, and he prays, and he believes God. And God does wonders through that. Guys, that's an encouragement for us as we're homesick, as we long for the kingdom in our own lives, as we long for the kingdom to come and change lives around us, to rescue people in darkness, to, to touch the lives of our beloved, to change the world. What do we do about it? We ask God, and God works and does things we, we can't even imagine in the heavenlies and around us. To be a people in exile who are homesick is to be a people who pray and also a people who work towards God's purposes. It's wonderful, the end of Daniel, chapter 12. It's speaking of the end times. It's speaking of the final reward, but it, it describes the people that are homesick and how they live. In, in chapter 12, verse 3, one of my favorite verses in Daniel, it says, And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above. This is the, at the end of all things. And those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Who are those who turn many to righteousness? 
those who are homesick would pray for their neighbors and tell them about Jesus. In Jesus is righteousness, right? In Jesus there is forgiveness. His blood covers all of our sins. His righteous life is credited to us as we trust in Him. We are counted righteous in Him, and we are made righteous more and more in Him, in the life of Christ in us. And to be His people is to be a homesick people who pray, and to be a homesick people who proclaim in order to turn many to righteousness. I think our lives should be like Daniel. I think our lives should be a lot like a man named Frank Bartleman. Frank Bartleman was a major leader in the Azusa Street Revival. This was a revival that happened in Los Angeles in the early 1900s. God used him in a manner very much like Daniel. He read about the revival, he heard about the revival in Wales. He, he heard about what was going on, that people's lives were being transformed. People who, who had kind of sunk into spiritual malaise all of a sudden found themselves freshly convicted of their sin, realizing how horrible it was, but also freshly aware of the wonderful grace of God, transformed. And, and they came together. They were profoundly changed. And their neighbors and family and friends came. And they came to know Christ as well. And, and the Spirit of God moved in power. And there were thousands who came to Christ. The, the, the culture was changed in Wales. And so Frank Bartleman read about that, and he was homesick for that. What did he do? He prayed. He sought the Lord. He actually started fasting and praying. And he did it continually. He skipped it. Many meals, he didn't sleep. He prayed, he fasted, to the point that his family thought he was going to die. Now, I'm not recommending you do that. But this is what Frank Bartleman did. He was fasting and praying and seeking, and he said, I'd rather die seeking the kingdom than to live without its fullness. He says, my life was by this time literally swallowed up in prayer. I was praying day and night. And in God's grace, God poured out revival on Azusa Street, on Frank's life and others' lives, transformed them in the power of the Holy Spirit and the truth of the gospel. And as a result, there are now 500 million Christians throughout the world who owe their lives in many ways, their spiritual life, to this man who was homesick for the kingdom. Are you homesick for the kingdom? Will you pray? Will you seek the Lord together? The band could come up as I conclude. Will you pray? Will you pray with us? Will you gather with us the fourth Wednesday of the month? Is that the fourth Wednesday of the month? To pray? To, to seek the Lord? To seek His kingdom? Are you homesick? Do you want to see His kingdom come in your life and around you? Are you like Daniel? Are you like Frank Bartleman? Do you want to see this? Then pray. Pray with us. Come together. Pray at home. Pray in your small group. Pray. We are gathering also monthly as a church with other churches in the city. It's citywide prayer. It's the third Thursday of every month. Honestly, we haven't had almost any King Grace people. I don't say that to make you feel guilty. I don't want guilt to, to motivate you. I want your homesickness for the kingdom. I want your, your awareness of the goodness of God, your, your desire for this. I want that to motivate you. Come and join us. Third Thursdays at, a, at churches in Haverhill, we, we will have the schedule available. Come and pray. Pray with us. Seek the Lord. Daniel was homesick for the kingdom. We are to live like Daniel.
homesick, seeking the kingdom, praying and proclaiming. So as we conclude here and before we go into communion, just take some time right now just to pray and say, Lord, what can I do in light of the truth of Daniel? Do I need to be more hopeful? Do I need to define myself by you instead of my circumstances and failures? Am I to be more helpful, more involved in blessing my city somehow? How can I live out homesickness for the kingdom? Just ask the Lord to speak to you about one of those things, and then we'll conclude with song and communion.